Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERA Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. In recent years, alcohol consumption among older adults has been rising because drinking problems among this population are sometimes overlooked or even misdiagnosed. Alcohol use disorders, also known as AUDs, are becoming more common and often associated with serious health conditions. Today, my guest is Dr. Gerald Marty, retired commander of the U.S. Public Health Service and also past president of the Maryland chapter of the American Society of Addiction Medicine. Dr. Marty will talk about alcohol use disorders among older adults, including risk factors, warning signs and symptoms, and diagnosis. He'll also talk about treatment and rehabilitation and how to lessen the incidence of this condition. So welcome, Dr. Marty, and thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Okay, well, Dr. Marty, I mentioned about alcohol use disorders. What exactly does that mean and how does it develop? That's a very good question. Um, Part of the change in the diagnosis from uh, alcoholism to an alcohol use disorder uh, was based on the notion that uh, referring to people as a town drunk uh, or an alcoholic uh, had a certain amount of uh, shame associated with it, stigma. And so there's an attempt in the addiction world uh, to use words uh, that don't convey um, a stigma. So an alcohol use disorder, uh, as it's uh, defined uh, in the latest uh, edition of the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, so-called DSM, and I'm referring to DSM-5, there are essentially 11 uh, symptoms uh, that uh, a physician, uh, uh, a uh, an addiction specialist would look for. And before saying what those uh, 11 symptoms are, I think another helpful thing about thinking about an alcohol use disorder and to think about it as an addiction and to think about it as a disease, uh, that there there is a spectrum from normal uh, that then begins with a mild disorder or a moderate disorder, or a severe disorder, uh, stressing the fact that it's a, 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 a continuum. So the first symptom is uh, if, if a patient finds that uh, he or she is, um, needs to take uh, more, uh, more of the uh, drug of choice uh, more often than, than previous, uh, with medication sometimes, this is referred to as uh, calling in and getting a refill sooner than you need. And then uh, the next step is uh, when a patient wants to cut down or stop uh, using the drug of choice and they find that they have difficulty doing it. Um, the third symptom is that if you find that the patient is spending a lot of time getting and recovering from the substance, uh, uh, that that becomes a concern. And then having cravings, cravings and urges for the substance, uh, not being able to manage at work, home, or school, uh, continuing to use even when, the, even when it causes problems in relationships. 
uh, number seven, giving up important social, occupational, and recreational activities. The patient might miss a grandchild's recital or a family dinner. If there's a picnic, he might decline saying, I can't walk on that kind of surface. When invited to a high school basketball game, the patient might respond, the bleachers are too uncomfortable for me, I'd rather stay home. Symptom number eight is using it over and over, uh, even when it puts the patient uh, in a serious dangerous situation, uh, such as falling down, driving while intoxicated, falling asleep with the stove on, leaving an iron on, falling asleep on a couch and waking up with a backache or stiff neck, stumbling and speaking with garbled and slurred speech. The ninth symptom is continuing to use even when the substance is causing uh, a physical problem or a psychological problem exacerbating it. Sometimes this can be associated with uh, outbursts of anger, uh, sleepiness, oversleeping, lethar le lethargy. And the tenth uh, symptom is the development of tolerance. Uh, patients need more and more of the substance in order to feel well, not necessarily to get uh, euphoric. And the final symptom is uh, withdrawal. Uh, when a person begins to uh, show symptoms of like sweating or chills, anger, anxiety, uh, oftentimes with alcohol, there can be uh, diarrhea. Um, uh, if, if these symptoms uh, start to be present, uh, the, these are withdrawal symptoms. What I wanted to hear about also, or what our listeners, I think, would like to hear from you is what I said in the introduction about that alcohol use disorders and alcohol consumption seems to be rising among older adults. Talk about that. That's a good question. And um, I think there's two parts to the answer. Uh, the first is, you know, the, the uh, increase of uh, alcohol use disorders in the older population. What could we attribute that to? Well, Many people are pointing out that uh, two-thirds of older adults that have an alcohol use disorder are essentially uh, the so-called baby boomers. They've reached the retirement age, and uh, oftentimes, uh, one or two things. They may have had uh, an alcohol use disorder uh, years ago and, and uh, were in some state of remission. Uh, but with retirement, uh, they they return. The, the disease is still there, and it comes back. There's a, the other third who develop an alcohol use disorder is uh, basically uh, they're now using alcohol for the first time, and they find that retirement has has caused a problem. There's social isolation. They begin to use it to deal with those problems of uh, being alone. And I guess the sole thing, the, the bottom driving thing is the number of, of boomers that are reaching that age group. And it's going to continue to increase. You know, you mentioned about loneliness. Do you think that the pandemic has also affected uh, incidents of uh, alcohol use disorders among older adults? I think unequivocally. Social isolation was, was a component before, uh, but certainly... Uh, a two-year lockdown is more than enough uh, to to produce any level of social isolation. Uh, I think one of the things, uh, this is perhaps an aside, uh, but uh, telemedicine really became very useful during this time period and hopefully will not only remind us of the pandemic, but we will be able to use it as we go f as we go forward. I also wanted to ask about risk factors and that perhaps if they had a drinking problem when they were younger, but it went away and it came back now, might there be any other risk factors that can influence alcohol consumption, like health conditions or other circumstances? What would you tell us? Well, we've, we've already mentioned uh, retirement uh, is at the top of the list. Um, uh, because people sometimes when they retire, uh, 
uh, are bored and don't have anything to do uh, and um, uh, 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 drinking is, is an activity that can be taken up. Uh, perhaps the, the biggest thing to discern uh, in an alcohol use disorder uh, is the overlap of symptoms uh, between the aging process and uh, so-called uh, polypharmacy. The average patient over the age of 55 is on five medications, and that's about 50%. And then I think another 40% are on, on like 10 or more. Um, and so you have the complex problem of drug-drug interaction, and then you have the problem of drug-alcohol interaction. And the third component of the overlap is uh, uh, dementia uh, that's associated with aging. Some of the behaviors associated with all these can, can mimic uh, dementia, and uh, so it has to be sorted out. And then and another, another predisposing factor is oftentimes the, the stress of the, the death of a spouse can be associated with increased uh, use of alcohol. And I would think, Dr. Marty, that the other factor is physiologically that older adults have a greater sensitivity to alcohol than younger individuals and probably feel the effects of alcohol more quickly. And then, as you said, the polypharmacy, isn't that a factor as well? I think uh, that certainly has uh, been described, defined, that perhaps two things contribute to that. Oftentimes, the lean body mass of an older person is, is smaller, which is, is the distribution space for alcohol. So the effective concentration of alcohol in such an individual is higher. And uh, the other thing which you alluded to is uh, that the metabolism of alcohol in the older person uh, is diminished. Uh, it's, it's slowed down so that, again, the effective concentration is higher than, than what perhaps they're used to. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit about diagnosing the alcohol use disorder in an older adult. Do you see that it, it, it may be more likely that this disorder in an older adult is underdetected or undetected or misdiagnosed by healthcare providers? What can be the difficulty in terms of getting treatment when we start talking about diagnosing it? This question always makes me think of how the medical profession views uh, the overview of an alcohol use disorder in an older person. If you ask a physician, are they comfortable in making a diagnosis of hypertension and treating it? They have no question in their mind uh, how to do that, how to treat it, how to monitor it, how to look for side effects, adverse effects of drugs. And if you ask them about uh, treating diabetes, they have the same reaction, that they, they know the sequence of drugs to use and how to monitor it. When it comes to alcoholism or alcohol use disorder, uh, the first level of inhibition is that uh, they don't want to embarrass the patient or em embarrass uh, the family, uh, that they might feel bad about this. And then there is a kind of um, a therapeutic annihilism that trying to treat someone with an alcohol use disorder, uh, the drugs that we have are not the most effective in the world. And so uh, I think sometimes physicians say, you know, it's not worth it. And besides they're old, leave things alone. And then of course, the screening tools that do exist are, are not used. And I think that one of the screening tools, uh, which I like to mention a lot, is called uh, ESPER. The S stands for uh, screening, and the IT is an abbreviation for short-term intervention, and the RT is refer is referred to therapy. That can all be carried out in a single office visit, and uh, I recently saw that physicians can be reimbursed something like $69 for, 
for doing that screen. It has a high level of accuracy and the correlation is quite high. There are, there are other single questions that are not quite as elaborate as the uh, so-called uh, audit device that's used. A simpler device is the, the mnemonic cage. Uh, the C stands for control. Do you try to control your drinking? And the A is, do you get annoyed when someone talks about your drinking? And G is, uh, do you have guilt the morning after if you think you drank too much? And the E in cage is an eye-opener, uh, someone who has alcohol early in the day, although that's an older screening method. And the simplest one, I think, referred to as uh, either NIDA, uh, National Institutes of Drug Abuse, or uh, NAAAA, uh, National Institutes of Alcoholism and Alcoholic Disease, a single question is, as a man, do you drink, have you drank uh, more than five standard drinks in a two-hour period on any day in the past week, past month, or past year? And for a woman, it is, have you drank four drinks in the last week, last month, last year? If the answer to those is yes, uh, then it's worthwhile pursuing uh, what the pattern of drinking is. Thank you uh, for these particular screening tests that can help to detect the condition. I wanted to also have you elaborate a little bit on what the fallout can be or the, what the effects of alcohol uh, use disorders can have going forth on physical and psychological health. You, you talked a little bit about that, also the social and cognitive health as you were discussing the symptoms, but it would be helpful for our listeners to understand that not only are we talking about the symptoms of alcohol use disorders, but what other occurrences can happen as far as physiologically and socially and long-term other health problems. What do you see? Well, I think that maybe going backwards, uh, from social isolation. I think that that's a serious uh, thing. Patients lose their connection. They, they no longer have a social network. And the physiology of it is that, particularly if they're on multiple drugs, is that things like uh, losing their balance or uh, having some slurred speech or you can't understand what mom's saying or, or you think mom's getting more demented those symptoms can be, as I said earlier, misinterpreted as either part, usually part of aging, and, and they might attribute it to dementia. And are there long-term uh, health problems as well, uh, heart disease? Uh, does it exacerbate if they have diabetes, liver problems? What, what do we need to know? That, that's a subject almost in itself. Um, the medical consequences of uh, long-term uh, use of alcohol. Liver involvement, of course, is, is well known. It, it usually starts with the development of uh, what's called a fatty liver. And over time, the fatty liver it leads to uh, fibrosis, which is, is cirrhosis. In our time right now, it can also be associated with uh, not only alcoholic hepatitis, but uh, a viral hepatitis, hepatitis C. And uh, we're just learning how prevalent that is in the uh, boomer population. And having those two things together, uh, alcoholic hepatitis and viral C hepatitis, can uh, perhaps fan the flames that might lead to, to the need for a liver transplant. I think that uh, oftentimes the uh, individual's uh, spleen will be enlarged because of the so-called increased portal pressure, hypertension uh, from the liver uh, back pressure to the spleen causes it to enlarge. And that can be associated with a, a, a situation called secondary hypersplenism where the spleen removes fixed elements from the blood, oftentimes uh, platelets. And this can lead to bleeding. 
the mucosa, the lining of the esophagus becomes uh, paper thin. And sometimes patients, uh, particularly in the morning after, when they're, they're nauseated and vomiting because of withdrawal and they're trying to get either some water or ginger ale into their stomach to quiet it down so they can take some more alcohol, they can vomit. And that vomiting uh, can cause a tear or a rupture uh, in the esophagus and, and lead to uh, an episode of gastrointestinal bleeding. And oftentimes that patient will, be, will show up in, in the emergency department and it can be treated. Uh, but if, it's, if it happens when the person is in social isolation and they pass out after this happens, it will essentially be uh, a fatal overdose of alcohol. The other sites of the uh, GI tract, uh, almost all sites, uh, with maybe the exception of the, the esophagus, is prone to the development of cancer. Uh, alcohol favors that. And then an, another organ that can take a tremendous beating uh, is the pancreas. There can be episodes of acute pancreatitis, uh, chronic pancreatitis. Each of those events can be associated with decreases of the, the islet cells that produce the insulin. And, and that's, how, that's how alcohol contributes to diabetes. And of course, some investigators think that carcinoma cancer of the pancreas is so prevalent in this patient population that sometimes they recommend the surgical isolation, removal of, of the pancreas in order to prevent this. And there's one other situation I think that has emerged today, and that is patients who've had the gastric bypass surgery, the RUNY, a syndrome has emerged that maybe about uh, 18 months or, or, or longer after the surgical procedure, people will either start to use alcohol or it, will const it can be seen as a relapse from previous abstinence. And, and of course, uh, it causes, alcohol causes the brain uh, to atrophy. Uh, uh, that's one of the first things that, are seen, that is, can be seen uh, on, a, on, on either a CT scan or uh, a um, MRI of the brain. That's a bad sign. Uh, alcohol is not good for anything in the body, particularly if chronic. I, I certainly hear you on that, and you certainly have summarized well the many health problems, and as you said, there are probably more. So we're going to take a short break right now, and in case you tuned in late, we are talking with Dr. Gerald Marty, who is a retired commander of the U.S. Public Health Service. He's also the past president of the Maryland chapter of the American Society of Addiction Medicine. And you are listening to WERA Arlington, 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Welcome back. We are having an excellent conversation about alcohol use disorders with Dr. Gerald Marty, who is a retired commander of the U.S. Public Health Service and also the past president of the Maryland chapter of the American Society of Addiction Medicine. Our first half of the interview, we talked about what alcohol use disorders are, as well as the signs and symptoms, risk factors, and how it's uh, diagnosed. Dr. Marty shared some screening tests that are used, but we really want to focus on treatment, Dr. Marty. So help us on this. How is a treatment regimen for alcohol use disorders determined, especially for an older adult? 
What, what, what is the, the health plan or the treatment plan? I think that the approach to that should be to, should be to start with what is sometimes referred to as a, a complete um, uh, medical and uh, mental health assessment. Um, and, and, and sometimes uh, that starts with, with the family or family member being aware or, or uh, being aware and interpreting uh, the signs and symptoms uh, that need to be brought to the attention of the ph physician. And uh, uh, just to possibly drop back a little bit is to keep in mind um, the, the role of what sometimes is referred to as the triple threat uh, what are major triggers? Uh, and these can be trauma or chronic stress. And then, of course, uh, repeated exposure uh, uh, to um, either the drug of choice or even uh, if trauma continues. Uh, these can easily uh, turn to a drug or alcohol use um, and, and uh, in an effort to deal with... Uh, anxiety or depression or fear. Um, I did not mention that a little bit earlier. With returning to finding help uh, for the, uh, the older adult uh, treatment, uh, again, starting with a, with a full assessment. And, and sometimes that may necessarily require the, you just simply uh, go to your mother or father's medicine cabinet or bathroom and gather up all the vials and then take them with the patient uh, to the doctor uh, to, to examine that. Because in, in terms of polypharmacy, if, if a patient is seeing, you know, they, they will have their primary care physician. Uh, if they have some hypertension or heart disease, they will have a cardiologist. And uh, if they have uh, rheumatoid arthritis or uh, uh, lupus, uh, they'll have a rheumatologist. And uh, oftentimes there's a gynecologist, a uh, dermatologist, and uh, even, a, even a psychiatrist. And if all these people are prescribing medication and are not talking to one another, um, uh, this, this can become a serious problem, particularly if each physician uh, describes a, a, different, a different medication. And, um, and oftentimes such a patient will complain about, you know, having either anxious, anxiety, or sleeping problems, and they'll be given uh, a, a benzodiazepine uh, for sleep. And not only can that be associated with confusion, but the combination of alcohol and a benzodiazepine is really a dangerous combination. So once, once you have the, the review of the medications, and there is actually a list uh, of medications. Uh, I haven't studied it very thoroughly, but it's called uh, Beer's List of Medications. One of the medical societies have, have prepared lists of drugs that uh, should be looked at closely. For instance, uh, some patients use long-term antihistamines, uh, Benadryl for sleep. That has been thought by some to be associated with memory loss. So pa patients are usually advised uh, not to do that uh, or to stop using that. And then once, once you're past that, then uh, the next step is, is probably to determine, can the patient be treated as an outpatient uh, or does the patient have to be hospitalized? Uh, and, 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 and move on to say residential treatment. Uh, ambulatory uh, detox is, uh, many patients don't need 
don't need to be hospitalized. But I think that they need someone at home uh, for the first 72 hours to be with them. Uh, usually uh, a benzodiazepine is used uh, for withdrawal. Uh, there are some other anti-seizure medications that are sometimes used. In, in older times, uh, barbiturates were used. The general recommendation on barbiturates is not, not to use them uh, in the outpatient setting and perhaps phys only physicians who have experience with uh, prescribing and using those drugs because um, the, the line between being therapeutically useful and uh, toxic is, is narrow. Uh, but at one time they were uh, perhaps the drug of choice for, for trying to treat withdrawal. And so if you, um, if, you, if you can have the patient be brought to your office or your clinic, uh, say for the first day, six or eight hours, if you have a nursing staff and, and even a consular staff uh, that can oversee these patients um, and then uh, try to get them safely off of alcohol. Uh, if, if, it's, if they have uh, significant underlying medical problems like the liver problems that we talked about or an enlarged spleen, uh, diabetes, hypertension, uh, then those patients may be uh, better treated uh, safely uh, in, a, in a detox uh, facility. And I think uh, besides dealing with the polypharmacy, and uh, safe withdrawal, and, and the, the goal of a safe withdrawal is to avoid seizures and also delirium. Uh, in fact, is if someone has a previous history of a seizure or delirium while undergoing um, a detox, uh, that's an indication for hospitalization. And um, I think it's uh, worth re worth saying, and it's a repeating thing, that uh, detox uh, is just the beginning of treatment. Oftentimes, I think that it's the end of treat. That people think that's the only treatment for alcoholism, and uh, uh, that's that's not true at all. Uh, many physicians, in fact, is uh, give up, throw their hands up because. Uh, you can have a patient who has a history of, you know, 20 emergency room visits uh, for uh, a 72-hour detox. I encountered a patient uh, last year uh, who was homeless and had been to uh, a, a, an emergency department 20 or 22 times uh, each year uh, before um, he had a fatal overdose and was found dead. I think it could have been prevented. So, uh, so the other thing to think about is um, still this division between uh, outpatient and um, residential treatment. The outpatient can, is sometimes referred to as IOP, intensive outpatient. And that's where the patient goes for several hours a day for two weeks. Uh, it can be like nine to one or uh, one to five or four to say eight or nine o'clock uh, in, in the evening, three, four hour sessions uh, for the first two weeks. And this is both an opportunity to observe the patient and it's a, it's a form of education, uh, so-called psychological education, uh, introducing uh, the patient to the concept of disease. Um, I think that uh, uh, this has this whole approach has to be oh, uh, personalized. Um, older patients uh, don't find it so easy to sit through a three or four hour hour class, if you will. However, they seem to do very well uh, in terms of the AA-like setting, where they uh, are able to share. Uh, the things that have happened to them while drinking uh, and, and find other people who had a similar experience 
that camaraderie uh, leads to uh, a connectivity, um, community, a communal, re a communal sense, a community fellowship. Um, um, how, however, one wants to use the 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 effective group uh, on on an individual. If they do need inpatient uh, residential treatment, that's often 28 days or 30 days, and uh, and it can be as long as 90 days. And uh, on occasion, you will encounter someone who required, uh, you know, like six months of uh, residential treatment. Often, those programs have uh, residential homes near the medical center where they can live after about three months. I think the other thing is that uh, oftentimes the older individual has these other medical problems. And uh, if we use uh, a man or a woman as the example, it's not uncommon for them to also be delivering a level of health care to, to their spouse. Um, uh, home health care. And to a certain extent, that has to go on. Uh, uh, that has to be discussed. And, and even uh, transportation uh, uh, has to be discussed. Uh, uh, oftentimes, they either no longer drive or conceivably could have lost their license for uh, the DUI driving while intoxicated. And uh, Part of treatment is to figure out how to get them back and forth uh, to the clinic. Um, and, and if they're hospitalized for any length of time, then these other care problems uh, have to be attended to. Uh, I think sometimes uh, just getting a healthcare worker at home um, uh, will, be, will be useful, uh, keeping in mind that you know, somebody over the age of 45 has at least one chronic condition, and uh, uh, many have uh, uh, three three uh, chronic conditions, such as blood pressure, uh, chronic obstructive lung disease, so-called uh, uh, COPD, and and diabetes. Oftentimes, is is advanced enough to uh, cause some renal disease. And, and just the combination of uh, hypertension, particularly untreated or uncontrolled uh, in the setting of diabetes can really lead to some uh, serious uh, kidney disease. So I, 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 I hope I've given um, uh, uh, an, an overview of, of uh, how this how to go about uh, uh, treating an, an older adult with an alcohol use disorder. And that's been very helpful. And you have described a number of different uh, possible treatment modalities, Alcoholics Anonymous, and perhaps rehab facilities. I was wondering about psychotherapy or similar types of, of treatment programs. Are those effective with an older adult? Uh, the answer is yes. What has emerged, and I don't think it's unique to alcohol use disorder or drug addiction, uh, is this field that's sometimes referred to as CB, CBT, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. The founder of that was a person by the name of Beck, Dr. Beck, who recently died, and his daughter, I forget her first name, she uh, has carried on. Uh, basically, they try to figure out uh, the so-called triangle of, of cognition and feelings and how behavior uh, can be used to change the way we think and how behavior can be used to change how we feel. They sometimes refer to that as the um, uh, CBT triangle. I think that uh, the, uh, perhaps where, where one sees this on a larger scale is at, at one time uh, when I was seeing uh, patients with addiction, uh, oftentimes uh, they uh, didn't want to go to AA and they didn't want to go to NA and they weren't interested in any 
faith-based church program. There is another program called Self-Management and Recovery Training, S-M-A-R-T. Uh, it has uh, four components, uh, build, building and, and maintaining um, uh, motivation and how to cope with urges and managing thoughts, feelings uh, in terms of behavior and living a balanced life. And they have a whole bunch of tools uh, that they've developed, and and those are free and can be downloaded from the computer. Uh, uh, these smart groups tend to be groups uh, uh, similar to an AA group, but um, uh, I would say where the disease model is more um, predominant, prevalent uh, in the AA setting the smart recovery uh, motif is uh, basically trying to trying to treat addiction uh, from a behavioral standpoint uh, which uh, um, uh, lead, leads us into uh, you know medications that can be used uh, uh, for this uh, uh, disorder uh, uh, perhaps one of the earliest uh, drugs that was used was uh, Anabuse. Um, and Anabuse was, uh, is a drug uh, that blocks the metabolism of one of the metabolites of alcohol, uh, an acetaldehyde derivative. And that, uh, that uh, derivative builds up uh, because the enzyme uh, to break it down further is blocked. And it's associated with uh, nausea and vomiting. And uh, uh, it can also, I think, long-term be associated with some, some memory loss. Uh, and there's some question about uh, how to use it in the setting of significant liver disease. But, but there, are, there are individuals uh, who, when prescribed this medication, feel that it helps them uh, to not to not drink because uh, sometimes uh, they will they will actually try it and see if they can take a drink and almost always this adverse reaction occurs uh, so that that, can, that drug can be useful although it's considered um, an old drug and uh, I recently read that um, the American Psychiatric Association uh, recognized that that anabuse not be used right away, uh, that one of the other milder drugs be used, and and perhaps uh, that would be uh, naltrexone, uh, which is a a medication originally an anti seizure drug, uh, which can be useful in um, uh, bre breaking the uh, craving. Uh, for alcohol. Um, and another drug, a campersite, uh, essentially does the same thing. Uh, I don't think we're sure uh, where the point of action of that drug is, whereas the naltrexone appears to be at uh, the uh, a, a glutamic acid uh, neurotransmitter uh, point. Uh, I don't think it's known for a campersite. And, and, and another problem that people sometimes have after um, uh, abstinence and, and, and the beginning of recovery, uh, it's not uncommon to have a sleep disorder. And uh, again, uh, uh, sleep, if sleeping medications are deemed necessary, uh, it's best to avoid um, benzodiazepines. And also, it's good to keep in mind uh, that this patient population, in addition to having uh, uh, medical comorbidities uh, at the level of about 20%, uh, mental health comorbidities are closer to 50%. And one of the most common uh, comorbidities in terms of mental health is depression. Uh, 
and and uh, and I and I and I think the depression uh, uh, needs to be treated, uh, whether it whether it preceded the alcohol use disorder, or is is a manifestation, a result of alcohol use. Um, it it needs to be treated, or it it can be treated, and. Um, it, I think if it if it was acquired with the alcohol use disorder, it may uh, lessen or disappear uh, with continued abstinence. Whereas I think if an individual had a history of depression prior to use of alcohol, and that's not always so clear because sometimes uh, if they started drinking early, it's hard to separate which came first. Um, well, Dr. Marty, I wanted to at least, because uh, we're getting closer to the end of the interview, and I did want to just ask you a couple questions about moderate drinking. You've talked so much about uh, treatment, diagnosis and treatment and different types of therapies, but it would be helpful for our listeners to hear from you how is moderate drinking defined for an older adult? What is an acceptable amount of alcohol that will avoid these many problems that we've been talking about in this interview? I think uh, in the uh, older adult, I would, I would try to avoid the habit of uh, more, than, more than one or two drinks and and, and by drinks, we usually mean the amount of alcohol that's in one 12-ounce can of beer or one uh, five-ounce glass of wine uh, or uh, the amount of alcohol in one shot in a, in a, a mixed cocktail. If, if they are uh, drinking, taking more than, say, two per day, and some people even limit that to, you know, two or three per week. It has the potential uh, to become a habit, and then the habit can lead to dependence. Um, I think that this this disorder only involves perhaps uh, 10% of the population, and, and a much higher percentage of older adults, which is increasing. But the majority of other people can drink without a problem at all. They are the ones who, uh, you know, don't finish a drink, leave a glass of wine half emptied on the table, uh, you know, have a bottle of wine in the refrigerator for two months. Uh, some people have a bottle of alcohol saved, you know, for Christmas or certain holidays that can, can last longer than years. So, yes, I think there is uh, moderate drinking, but uh, I, I would hasten, suggest caution, uh, if for no other reason, uh, because of, of the polypharmacy uh, that exists. And, and I also think if someone, well, if someone is, is demented uh, with a dementia, I can't imagine them uh, being served alcohol. Okay. Well, we're just about out of time. Any final comments or resources or message that you'd like to share with our listeners about this um, important topic? I think one thing that, that comes to my mind is that the resources that are available, uh, the NIH uh, in terms of NIAAA, the National Institutes of, of Alcoholic Disease and Alcoholism, uh, on their website has some of these screening things and just how to take care of an older person with an alcohol use disorder. And NIDA, uh, the uh, National Institutes on Drug Abuse, uh, has similar uh, a similar message. And SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Illness Agency, uh, they also continuously have problems of uh, things dealing with alcohol. And there's a large movement in this country now. Uh, it may not be appropriate uh, to older adults, but many parents are stepping forward 
particularly if, if a son or a daughter has had uh, a fatal overdose uh, from this disease. And the final thing I would say, I recently uh, found a book, uh, a guide for families and caregivers uh, uh, recognizing and facing alcohol and drug misuse in older adults. Uh, it was written, prepared by Harry Hutonian, uh, who is a physician and a, the physician director uh, for, for professional programs at the Betty Ford Center. I uh, found that book or find that book uh, useful for its organization. Okay. Well, wonderful interview, excellent interview. And we certainly want to thank Dr. Gerald Marty, who is both a retired commander of the U.S. Public Health Service, as well as past president of the Maryland chapter of the American Society of Addiction Medicine for joining me today. Thank you so much, Dr. Marty. I also want to point out that if you want to learn more about Aging Matters, you can visit our website, which is agingmattersonline.com. And you can access all of our Aging Matters radio and TV show content, as well as our Aging Matters podcasts on Apple and Spotify. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media. And that company you can learn more about by visiting inkmouthmedia.com. Thank you for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week.